I also, with a warning, that I'm a one-note Dharma teacher. And whenever you come to any courses that I do, you'll hear one note. Now, there are various themes you can play from that. But basically, that I feel drawn to this with such um, importance and with such, it's drawing me in in the way death and dying did in the beginning. It just, it has nuances that just are forever. And so I just want people to know that when they come to courses that I do, that they're going to get what I, what you got last time and what you're going to get this time. And, and if that's unsettling, it, the reason I give you some caveat here is because for many people who take it in, hopefully it challenges everyone. But it, Hopefully, uh, it, and also within that challenge will be confusion because when you're challenged, when, you're, um, when something uh, stretches you, uh, it should confuse you. Like what? Because we come out of the place that we have known into something other, a different perspective, and that is confusing to many people. And uh, people feel... Uh, sometimes distraught from that confusion. Some people feel challenged from that confusion. And so I don't know which, who's who in that. For I teach you the way I held myself accountable. I teach you how I learned. I teach you with what, what was important to me. And was in the, with as much sincerity as I can. Uh, so I give you that because I get a lot of notes. <laughs> so I'm going to start you off safe. I'm going to start you off with science. Right? I mean, you know, scientists just... They don't get shaken. They just go out and... So, it, so <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, looking at this cosmology series on... Uh, it's called uh, Great Courses. And it's um, by a professor, Mark Whittle, from the University of uh, Virginia, a uh, cosmologist. And it, it, to me, it's Dharma. Because he starts out... And this is science. They somehow are able to figure all this out. <clears throat> so he says this. He says, we have the ability to look out at the universe and to figure out the mass of the universe. Now, there are 100 billion or more galaxies and perhaps 100 billion stars in each galaxy, like our star. So we're looking at a lot of territory. And they're able to sum the total mass of that, of the universe. And it turns out, it comes out to 10 to the 53 power milligrams. So that's it. That's, a, some t that's everything. Okay. So what is that? That doesn't say anything. Okay, we're not there yet. But listen, listen. Now, he says, that's not the end of the story, he says. 
casually. I said, hmm. He says, no, you have to take in the counter effect on mass that gravity has. And so when you look at all of the gravity in the universe, which subtracts from the total mass, guess what? It comes out to 10 to the minus 53 milligrams. He says casually, the universe sums to zero. My jaw drops. And he says, each part, each particle of the universe, since it also has gravity and mass, sums to zero. Now, suddenly the world is wide open here because when we look around, we don't necessarily see zero. We see a lot of stuff. And Dharma is really coming back to clear seeing of zero. The spiritual journey is simply correcting a mistaken belief, a mistaken perception. That is what the spiritual journey is about. We in Buddhism can make it very elaborate, very complex, but in essence, it is very simple if we're willing to go towards that simplicity. The problem is the simpler it becomes, the more it shakes us and the more frightened we become of what this simplicity implies about our life. There's always the resource of releasing, surrendering to that zero, but few of us are willing or able to do that from the start. And so we go through this long labyrinth of trails until we finally come to the conclusion that we have no other thing we can do except to release ourselves to that zero. And so that's what all of us are doing here in the room. We're just marching through it. And let me say right off that wherever you are on that journey is the right place for you to be. And no way am I suggesting that you should be somewhere else. Please hear that. But for you to stretch, I have to throw the rock far. If you interpret me throwing it far, that you're in the wrong place, that, you, that I'm judging you for where you are, that you should be where the rock lands, then you'll be in more confusion and despair. I'm just trying to show you the possibilities of this journey. But that doesn't mean that where you are isn't the perfect place to proceed within that and on that journey. So let's get going here and see what this whole thing is about. And I want to just backtrack and bring forward my last talk, if I could. Uh, this talk is really about effort, which is where I was eclipsed last time. And I want to, I just want to expand it a little bit. And to do so, I'm going to uh, talk about it in terms of the ending of suffering rather than in terms of selflessness. Because I think changing metaphors for some people helps us settle in to the problem in a different perspective. Although I am saying the same thing. I'm not, it's a one note teacher. 
Now, I'm going to use the same words that I used last time just to catch us up here. But many of us have begun to feel the weight of the image we carry. Anatta, selflessness, is simply, the, is simply stepping out of that image. The self is an image believed. That's all it is. It's an idea believed. It is a thought believed. It's nothing more than that. And you know the randomness of thought in your practice. Just thoughts coming, you aren't able to control them. They're just filling the space of the mind. And you can see how ridiculous they are. Where there's one thought that we have practiced so intensely with such embellishment that we adhor giving it up. And that's the thought of I. It's still a thought, but we have taken that I out of the realm of thought and made it into something. We have made something out of the universe. It's no longer zero. And some of us have spent a lifetime in pain around that thought. And now we're beginning to move out of that pain and embellish the image of I. And other people are responding and believing in the image we present. And suddenly this sense of image is taking over our life. And we don't know what happened. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this complex. And we feel kind of tied up in the whole rat race of the image, but we don't know how to get out of it. We don't know how to set it aside. And we also, some of us, really like it. We like what we've become through the image. We like the image we hold. And from that simple sense of belief, a star system is born, and then a galaxy, in the sense that the sense of image starts developing attitudes associated with it. Because when you have an image and you are looking out and people see that image, then you have to protect that image and discourage any emotional volatility or vulnerability because it doesn't fit your image. And so you start now closing down to the heart. You start closing down to what, what is it's authentic within us. And we don't realize we're doing that. Now with the attitude starting to spread, there becomes a posture, a posture to life associated, unknown, because we, the image is not conscious. Okay? And so the posture isn't, the attitude isn't conscious. We just know we get up, with a certain, get up in the morning with a certain attitude. And suddenly the attitude turns into a kind of a posture to life, a certain representation to life. We take a stand that we, and an expectation and an arrogance. And all of that develops out of what? Out of a thought. It's crazy. You know, if the window is painted black, sun can't get through it. If the image is too opaque, too invested in, light can't get through. 
the light of interconnection, the light of love. People say, why is all this Ananda stuff, Rodney? Why don't you talk about love? I talk about nothing else. And so we just, we pull the shades down from our own heart, over our own heart. Just pull it down. And there's a sadness that grows in us because we feel a distance occurring. And so we come here. But we come here with the same guarded condition, the same resolution of attitude, the stained stubbornness of being. And there's nothing happening here. No one's holding you to any of the images we are in. Nobody, everyone is freeing themselves up to image. If we can't free ourselves up from image here, we can't do it. Because this is the safest place you'll ever find to step out of yourself. No one's holding anyone to an image. I'm not expecting, nor is Christina, expecting anything of an image. from. If you're a doctor, we're not expecting you to be a doctor. We're expecting you to be a human being. This is a call to ordinariness. Feel the passion. Another way we can look at what transpires on the spiritual journey is to see it as moving from unconsciousness to consciousness. And the sense of me is unconscious. And what we do in the spiritual journey is use the sense of me to make ourselves conscious. That's called effort. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. But if the sense of me is unconscious and it's driving the show, you're being driven by the habits from the unconscious. Why doesn't this dawn on us? And so then we start thinking, okay, something's not being seen here. And everything that comes out of this, everything that manifests in relationship to an unconscious tendency is going to be habit. It's going to be strategies from a habitual response. When we are lost in habit, we are lost in the contraction of that habit. We are lost in our suffering. So this is the Buddha's great message. The Buddha's great message is if you're unconscious, you're going to suffer. And as you become more conscious, you will suffer less. So that's how consciousness, unconsciousness, not suffering, suffering, 
Self and not self. Those all are the same thing. They're the same, absolutely the same continuum. So as I move in and out of these different continuums, don't lose the point we're making in reference to each one. So if this universe sums to zero, what is it that makes it seem as if it's so real and distinct, separate, isolated things? Well, it turns out that opinions and views, fixations, as Christina was speaking about last night, create the sense that something is only what we think it is, only what our thoughts tell us it is. And so from the thought of something being something, we have taken nothing and made it into something. So just, just follow this. I'm not going to go into much more detail than that. But that's how something, that's how nothing becomes something, through our opinions and views. And if you look at the sense of self, it's full of opinions and views. In fact, we think that you're clearer if you have more opinions. So the sense of self builds itself upon opinionation and reactivity, thereby assuring that it will make the world into something and have inevitable disputes with that something at every turn of the page. Now we come in to meditation and we're full of our somethingness called, why aren't we? Let's just be honest. We don't come here empty. We come here feeling like something. And that something has become somewhat of a burden. And we, because it's become a burden, we're trying to figure out how to get out of the burden of ourselves, but keep ourselves intact. We aren't so interested in putting ourselves aside, but we're interested in getting out of the pain of the burden. First of all, you can't do that. You can't get out of the pain and keep the unconscious unconscious because the unconsciousness is what brings forth the pain. <laughs> this is called spiritual logic. <laughs> I think it's under, it's like a beautiful tool to think, okay, now if the un self is unconscious and pain, and I'm experiencing pain in my sittings, tension, suffering, contraction, then maybe my effort is coming from the unconscious. That's spiritual logic. And it's beautiful because it points in a wise direction. So as we start our spiritual journey, we are full of ourselves. And the only way we can get this thing moving forward is by being and bringing an unconscious effort to our lives, to our practice. Everyone starts at that rate. No one has made a mistake. 
There's nothing, it's the only way any of us can start. So we start with the mechanics of the practice as being our authority, or a teacher, if whatever, but not with ourselves. The reference is not to ourselves. The reference is to taking ourselves and getting in, evolving ourselves out of this burden we call the pain of our life. And so we take on a practice as a mechanical means to do just that. And the mechanical means starts with something that's very structured, very organized, and very predictable, all of which the ego loves because that's what its definition is. Give me structure, give me organization, give me representation, give me an, an absolute certainty. No, I don't want any confusion here. I want an absolute certainty. And so the practice starts like that. We start with the breath, and the breath can be plotted as a graph, number of breaths over time, as I've mentioned to some of you, and the graph goes up. Over time, you will be with more breaths than you were when you started. Now, it won't look like that. It'll look like that. But the slope of all those peaks and valleys will head in a positive direction. Scientific. It will happen to every one of you if you're sincere and actually apply yourself. And we think, great. I'm feeling this is wonderful. This is working. And it is working. It is working. And it's doing just what it was meant to do. And we are satisfied. Because at this particular phase of the practice, there's a lot of expectation for the practice to succeed. Or we're out of here. I mean, we've been lied to our whole life. And is this another lie? I don't know. It better pay off. I'm only going to give it so much time. And by God, my breath attention better increase. <laughs> and I lose, I do a beginning class of six weeks, and I lose a quarter of the people between week one and week three because it didn't pay off fast enough. So we start out in charge of our own growth. We start out at the controls, right? Now, there's an interesting story, and many of us will follow that persistence, stubbornness, that we're going to be at the controls, even though being at the controls begins to feel more contracted. There's more pain and suffering associated with the tightness and tension of being at our control, driving ourselves. The effort, the ambitious effort of leaning into, the white-knuckling effort of our own ambition. Now, we don't, at that point, many of us don't see that we're creating more suffering for ourselves. We just think that we're, we're, gonna, we're just going to do this thing. And believe me, I know this one. You, I can, however hard you try, I was there. So, now is this, as we white knuckle ourselves and we don't, we miss the feedback. 
Now, the Buddha said something very interesting. He said, somebody that doesn't listen to the feedback of their mind is like an incompetent cook who doesn't listen to what the people he's feeding like or want. He just cooks anything. So the feedback to the cook is like, this is terrible, this is burnt, and he doesn't care. He's just in there frying his food, right? <laughs> now, <laughs> so he's telling us something about this phase of effort. He says, start listening. There's, there's, a, there's a feedback loop that's essential here, that the quicker we pick it up, the quicker we embrace it, the better the will become stronger within our practice. We'll, be, we'll be start learning. We'll start understanding what this practice is. It's a feedback system. It's a continuous feedback. See, the mechanical approach doesn't listen to the feedback. Why would it listen to the feedback? It's just going forward. I don't care about what my mind is saying. I'm going this way. And so when we have that kind of tension in relationship to where we're going, feedback is the last thing we're interested in. It's coming from the sense of self anyway that remains unconscious. We're going forward in this business. So, the faith that we have at this point is entirely in ourself. And so the faith we have in ourself is a kind of persistent stubbornness. No feedback. Now there's an interesting story in the Buddhist tradition about the Buddha was walking with a few of his monks, and he comes to a few uh, Jains. Jains were a sect uh, of a contemporary sect of the Buddha who were a Hindu sect, and they did practices. And the Buddha never made fun of them or anything, but some of them were kind of strange. <laughs> so, so these Jains were staring at the sun, or something like that, and the Buddha says. Uh, Hi, Jane. He says, <laughs> he says uh, what are you doing? And the Janes, I guess there were more than one, said, uh, I'm wearing off my karma. And we said, oh. He says, uh, how much have you worn off? And they said, well, I scratched it. I don't know. Who says, well, how much more have you got to do? How much more? Karma, have you got to, you know, so that you can leave when it's over? <laughs> and they said, that's an interesting question. Gosh, I don't know. I don't know. He says, well, well, how will you know when it's over? I, said, I don't know. And then the Buddha moves on, and he turns to his monks, probably out of earshot of the Jains. He says, this is truly silly practice. It's just persistent stubbornness. But least we think we have left the Jains far behind, let us look again at our own persistent stubbornness. When we're not listening to the very feedback loop of what the mind is telling us about the effort we're exerting, we are staring at the sun, hoping for something. You see, now we're getting into the art of practice. That's a whole different frame of reference for effort than the mechanics of practice. 
The mechanics of practice doesn't care about the art. It's just plowing forward. And as I mentioned, if you're in that phase of your meditation, fine. But just reflect upon the tension that's being created from applying effort in the way you're doing it. Just become aware of the feedback system so that you can tune yourself to the continuum that the Buddha is presenting from suffering to not suffering. You think suffering is going to be eliminated by creating more suffering along the way? Does that, is that spiritual logic? That if I just, if my fist can get, you see, it's like we ball our fist up so tight, and then with this hand, we are trying to take this, loosen it up. Well, wait a minute. Maybe I could do that. <laughs> we can laugh together, but it, you know, it's very, very serious, isn't it? But it's fun at the same time. And if we get too serious and we, we go too. But if it's too light, you see the balance of it? So uh, I came back from Asia just self-disclosure. I think sometimes just sharing one's own story can be helpful. I came back from Asia, about, spent about eight years having practiced, very diligent practice, four years here and four years in Asia. Uh, sincere, but when I came back, uh, in the interim of those eight years, uh, both my parents had died early in my uh, adult life. I had no money. I had no place to go because I didn't have a home. And I came back and I, I landed and I, it was the most confusing time of my life. And this is after eight years of very, very diligent practice. And I was confused, I was frightened. It was perhaps the most frightening, frightened I had been because I didn't, I didn't know where to go. I was facing a complete unknown without any sense of the next step for myself. And, and I realized, because of the feedback of that anxiety, that I had been moving in accordance with my control. I was driving my practice, even through those eight years. And much of that eight years was very diligent practice. But I was in control of it. I was going here, then I was going there, and then I was doing that, and I was doing that system. And at some point when I came back, I realized I had no faith whatsoever, because it had all come from my own muscle mass. And I saw that. And I said, my God. See, sometimes it takes that kind of revelation for you to see how you've been moving unconsciously. And much of the insights we'll be having in the course of this week and the rest of our spiritual lives will be to see how unconsciously we have been moving. And suddenly we will wake up to that fact. Now, faith, you see, you hear about uh, be with things as they are. 
But if you don't feel safe with things as they are, why would you ever want to be with things as they are? If they're moving in a way contrary to your expectations or desires, you're not going to join things as they are. You're going to wait until the right formation of things being the way they are so that you can join them. And then you're going to pull out as soon as they get scrambled a little. So that the faith is joining things as they are, period. That's faith. Because all of us have faith, but we have faith in ourselves. We place our faith in ourselves, not faith in the way things are. And as both Christina and I have mentioned before, you don't become vulnerable. You don't become at the mercy of things. You don't say, yes, I'm in an abusive relationship, but that's the way things are, and I'll stay in an abusive relationship. No, you do not do that. That's not, there is an intelligence there. There's discernment, and you get away from abuse. You see it coming, you see manipulation coming, you step aside. So, but most of us feel the vulnerability of dropping our guard, dropping our control, and losing our reference, the only reference we know which has been our control. And so we keep our guard up in order to navigate difficult situations. The problem is it's all difficult. Life is difficult. So we keep our guard up throughout the whole thing and we just wait for this opportunity sometime when there'll be a flat land with no difficulties. Now I can drop it. Now I can. You, you will come. There will be a flat time. It's called death. And so this feedback starts taking hold. And you say, oh my God, you know, I missed something here. And you don't belittle yourself for it. You don't judge yourself for it. You don't condemn or shame or hang out your spiritual, you know, hang your spiritual head. You just stand up and then you say, all right, got it. Let's start moving. Let's, let's move forward. Let's move forward. And you know what? I landed here in the States and every step that I had no idea after taking a step what the next one is has taken me safely here. And so will it to you. And if you think you have to carry your image along with you you're obscuring, obscuring that truth because you think you've done it. Now we have 70 years on this planet, 80, I don't know what it, I hope all of you live long lives, but at some point your life is going to end. And if we have used that time just to build upon one thing, our image. What have we been doing? Because as we cement our image, we make everything respond to it. That is our demand. 
And we have billions of images out there. So as we start working with the limitations of the mechanics of the practice, we notice that the limitation, it hurts. We start feeling dry because our heart has been mechanically in abeyance. Our heart is covered by our systematic working towards. And so many people come to me when they're in this phase of practice and say, you know, my heart is dry. I just don't feel any juice to the practice. I don't feel any love. I don't feel any caring. I said, that's feedback. That's feedback. The mind is trying to, you're getting feedback. You're getting the most valuable feedback that anyone could get. Better than the Buddha giving you a message. You're getting the most important message of your life. Let's look at what you're doing and see if you're willing to change. Let's look. Because you want to continue to have a dry heart. You're, the way you're going won't lead to anything else but a dry heart. Don't say, well, at some point my heart will become full. It won't. It'll become drier. It's called prune meditation. And so the feedback we get from our effort when we co connect with the pain that's pushing, we begin to notice the pain of what we're doing to ourselves. We begin to, take it, to acknowledge that. We begin to correct the course dependent upon the direction we're going, which is the end of suffering. We begin to course correct. I see when I do that, I get tense. Why don't I try not doing that? See what that's like. And what is it? If I get tense, what is it that really releases the tension? And we find our way through our own, through our own maneuverable, maneuverability, through our own insight, our way. Based upon our feedback. And soon... And this is the beauty. This is, this, is this is where you'll be challenged, I promise. You won't be challenged so much in the mechanics, because mechanics are the mechanics. You do what you get it. Then you have to start listening to the feedback of the mind, and the feedback says, take me into consideration. So now we're in unknown territory, because I don't know what to do. I'm listening to the feedback of what I'm doing. This loop is closed now. I'm just not going to listen to what you tell me to do or what a procedure tells me to do. I'm not going to be enslaved to the authority of a technique. Not because I'm not going to do it. It's because I see that when I do that, I, it's painful. And I lose something. I lose something rich. I lose my heart. Now I have seen people stay in the mechanics of practice for their entire duration. They think they're going to get out of it at some point, that there's going to be some explosion, some cosmic gap, some cessation moment in which everything comes pouring in.
don't believe that if it's from the highest, most renowned monk. You don't believe that. You believe your feedback. And you look and see if this is the way your heart is in tone to move, is inclined to move. And then what happens is this new art of practice. No longer the mechanics now. We're an art form. This is, an art. This is jazz. <laughs> this is communication. This is listening. Now we're in this whole different relationship to ourselves. It's the jazz of practice. And we're listening to the feedback. We're asking questions because we feel the sense that there's something back there that's mysterious and unknown and that I haven't called it out. I realize now that I have been just basing my practice on the assumptions that I am. And those assumptions that I am have been driving the mechanics of the practice forward. Now I begin to ask, when you are not, when you're unconscious, the questions you ask are from those assumptions. What am I to do? How am I to get over this? Where am I to go? What do I, what effort should I? Those are questions from the assumption of the unconscious me. But when you're doing the art, when you're doing the jazz, when you're listening to the background feedback, you start questioning those very assumptions themselves. You start saying, well, what is this I that seems to set itself up in a certain direction? What is this thing? What is? What is this? You ask questions about the assumptions, not from the assumptions. Now it opens up. Now it opens up. Wondrous. No longer certain guarantees, no guarantees now. We're in, we're in the state of discovery the state of exploration, the state of wonder, because we're listening and asking, questioning, looking, no certainty. It's just going, just going. It's a beautiful time. It's the time of joy, because joy is the state of wonder. It's the time of the heart. Because when you're in the state of wonder, the image is no longer capturing the movement and prohibiting the feedback. And the willingness to go anywhere with it, just to look anywhere, wherever it goes, where, and so you start feeling the pain of your lifetime come forward, you turn to the pain. Because you begin to see that if you don't turn to the pain, which is the feedback that's coming through, you'll be enslaved to the pain and be acting out of the pain rather than knowing the pain and being free of it. So 
you refuse, I'm not following, I'm going to turn to it. And so it you go to the worst possible places in yourself. Joyfully. And you begin the true art of discovery, which is meditation, which has to be done. The Buddha couldn't have told you how to do this. You will have had to navigate this whole path by yourself. You will have had to listen to things about yourself that you've never wanted to hear. In fact, you've been running, we've been running from our whole lives. But the sincerity of the heart refuses to pass over anything. And what comes out of that is not some philosophical, sophisticated meditator. but innocence. May we all know that innocence. Let's sit for a minute or two. As you sit, how do you sit? Is there a point to the effort you're making? Just ask these questions innocently. I'm not judging. You're not judging anything. You're just opening up the feedback by asking the question. What are we trying to gain? Where do we think we're going? Is what I'm doing causing me more pain, more suffering, more contraction? Am I running away from myself? Am I following on track with wise view? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Thank you all.
Enjoy yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.